It was really, really good. Um, I hope, church, that you sense the presence and the loving heart of the king here today who um, knows. He just knows. He knows what you came with and why you're weighted down at times, and he knows you, and he loves you, and he cares for you. And um, so I hope you have sensed that so far, and uh, I believe that if you will allow the Holy Spirit to fill the temple, you will sense the difference in the destiny that the king has on your life. Thanks for leading us. I don't know where our worship guys are all, they're scattered around, whatever, but thanks for leading us through that tender thing. And I also don't want to um, minimize um, that word about the, proclaiming the name of Jesus about what's on your heart. That's so important. It's not, an in, it's not a mystical incantation. It's a declaration of your faith and a calling out to the king. And so I, include, I encourage you to do that, not just now, but um, as your day continues and the Holy Spirit speaks to your heart, you do that. Okay, today's the 18th. Let's get into um, our message today. Proverbs 18, verse 2. A fool takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. I don't know why the Lord chooses certain Proverbs that speak to me personally, but... <laughs> About 1,600 years ago, um, in about the 4th century after, after Christ, the church, the body of Christ was a little bit unsettled. There were things going on um, all the way from Constantinople, which is in modern Turkey, all the way to um, Alexandria, Egypt. The, 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 the body of Christ was kind of unsettled, and, and I think they were wrestling with what it is we believe, you know, what, what some key foundational issues in the church, um, who's God, and what about Jesus, and what this stuff, what's about this stuff about the Trinity? It's kind of hard to understand. And there were people that were rising up. One guy in particular was a guy named Arius, who in Alexandria, Egypt, um, was teaching and preaching, and he was denying that Jesus uh, was God. He was denying the Trinity, and he was creating a lot of doubt about the character and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And um, in response to all this being unsettled, Church leaders from around the world got together in uh, 325 in a little town called Nicaea, which is, is in modern-day Turkey. And they spent some time, and they worked it out, what it is we believe, and they formulated what, what's called a creed, the Nicene Creed. You didn't know it, but you sang it this morning. You sang a song that was written um, based on the Nicene Creed, and it said, um, we believe... In one God, the Father, the Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen, we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from Father, light from light, true God from true God, begotten and not made, of one substance with the Father, we believe in the Holy Spirit. And it goes on. On and on the creed goes. And these were their absolutes. They, they were their non-negotiables. They, they, they were irreducible minimums. These guys, this is the, the very core of their faith. It, and it's what they knew to be true. And I think things have um, occasionally gone there again. Things have changed. And people today aren't so sure what they believe even in the body of Christ, even in the larger church. Mark Twain is uh, noted for a lot of things. One of the things he said was, a lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. <laughs> and it's amazing what gets printed as truth. I mean, the crazy things that get printed as truth. And all you have to do is go through the grocery store check it out to, to uh, see that point. I mean, some hilarious, hilarious headlines. <laughs> you know, you can hear, so here's a few. An alien mummy goes on rampage. 
cow mattresses help cows produce more milk. <laughs> Any cow farmers here? Okay. You can try it. Mom-to-be on diet of only chicken lays a huge egg. <laughs> These are actual headlines. World War II bombers found on the moon. Here's one of my favorites. Woman gives birth to her own grandma. Here's a good one. Vegan vampire attacks trees. <laughs> That's perfect in the, you know, around forks because they got vampires up that way. Okay, now here's a really good one. I just decided to give you a photo of this one. Talking cat, secret CIA experiment exposed. Would you leave this one up for a minute because I think this warrants a little more explanation. Notice how now cat will spy for the US in Iraq. And if you look closely, there's a picture of a cat being deployed on a parachute. And if you look really close, it's $2.95 in U.S. and $3.95 in Canada for this magazine. Anyway, I, I just uh, chuckle about that kind of stuff. I think it's obviously a pretty extreme example. But it got printed, and people pay for it. They do. I mean, I confess, I buy a mad magazine every once in a while, and I know that it's going to rot my brain. There's something cathartic about having your brain rotted by Alfred E. Newman. Anyway, so... A lie can travel halfway around the world while the truth is still putting on its shoes. Now, we're going to be in uh, the book of 2 Timothy today, and so here's kind of the context of the book. Paul is writing to a young leader in the church named Timothy, who was his protege, and he was a, a, a leader, what? Um, he was a leader, <laughs> I missed something, okay, and um, he was a leader in the church in Ephesus, and um, and the, the topic of the whole book is about a, is, is a subject called apostasy. Now, apostasy is a term that means falling away from, um, a departure from the truth. And when this letter gets to Timothy, this is only about 30 years since Jesus had walked on the earth. So it's only 30 years later, and people are falling. They're kind of dropping out, and um, they're, 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 they're casualties on what we could call maybe the battlefield of truth. And on one hand, that really doesn't surprise us. Um, you know, it's kind of been that way from the very beginning in the body. Of the, in, in, at the very beginning, in the garden, the serpent said to Eve, did God really say? And, and started to sow some doubt. In fact, Jesus asked a really disturbing and penetrating question. You can read this in Luke 18. He says, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's a that's pro provocative question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? Last week, we talked about the, the um, historic Christian uh, faith being attacked from the outside. And today, I want to touch on the topic of how Christian faith is being attacked a little bit from the inside. It's even more disturbing what's going on, I think, in some ways, what's going on inside the church. And I'm going to mention in this passage, or in this message today, I'm going to mention some movements, and I might even name some names that maybe you'll be familiar with, maybe you won't be familiar with, and I hope that you will be more after today. Now, I, I need to say that you'll see why I'm going to name names. I'm very, very careful. I generally don't do that. I, in fact, I don't do that. But we're going to see some scriptural context for why I'm going to do that today, and, and we'll get there. But there's been a movement in the United States in particular, not just in the U.S., but centered since the early 1990s, and it's under an, a, a broad umbrella called the Emergent or Emerging Church. And it's a, it's a movement that, that in part just denies the existence of absolute truth. You know? And that's kind of what makes it frightening. They, they deny that you can know anything in an absolute way. And it's, it's really a repackaged form of existentialism, you know, um, which, which values self and sincerity 
authenticity over truth. I mean, that's kind of, of what it believes. And the problem with that is that, that that movement also wants to be called evangelical Christianism at the same time. And, and many people wouldn't know the difference. Abraham Lincoln was having an argument with a guy. And they were going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And finally, Abraham Lincoln got kind of, you know, frustrated with a guy. And he said, hey, let me, let me just ask, I ask a question. How many legs does a cow have? Well, four, of course. And Abe says, well, good. Okay, so let's, let's just, you know, let's suppose, you, suppose you call a tail a leg too. Now how many legs does the cow have? And, of course, the answer comes back five. And Lincoln says, no, that's where you're wrong. Because it doesn't matter how many times you call a tail a leg. A cow only has four legs. <laughs> and that's a, a good picture of the real discussion at hand here. It doesn't matter if you call a tail a leg. A tail is not a leg. So we're going to be talking about some streams of thought that are coming into the body of Christ and into the, into the church today. Okay, in 2 Timothy, starting in chapter 4, starting in verse 1. I charge you... This is Paul writing to Timothy, and that word is, I, actually, I solemnly charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his, appearance, at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, re, rebuke, exhort, and with all longsuffering and teaching, for the, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. So the context here is there was this prevalent condition in the church of Ephesus where Timothy was pastoring, and um, there was, pa uh, Paul was helping Timothy deal with this undercurrent, this, this, uh, this apostasy that was going on there, this falling away from the truth. So to understand this, this, this undercurrent, this, this prevalent condition, we're going to go back to chapter 1. And pick up in verse 13. And Paul writes this. He says, Hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. The, the good thing which was committed to you, keep by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. This you know that all those in Asia have turned away from me, among those are Phygelus and Hermogenes. Now, I think it's fascinating here that Jesus, that the Holy Spirit through um, the Apostle Paul here, actually names names. And these two dudes are forever inscribed in Scripture. Amazing. Okay, 2 Timothy 2, verse 15. Be diligent, he's writing to Dim Timothy, be diligent, to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now, remember that little phrase, word of truth, in fact, park it up in the front part of your brain because we're going to come back to that and, and you're going to need it again in just a minute. Word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness and their message will spread like cancer. Hymenaeus and Philetus are of this sort. Again, the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul here is naming names. Verse 18, who have strayed concerning the truths saying that the resurrection is already past and they overthrow the faith of some. Chapter 3. Verse 1, but know this, that in the last days, and I think this passage we're going to read right here becomes more relevant every minute. <laughs> know that, that in the last days, perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, which by the way is saying bad things about God, or it can mean saying bad things about other people because they're godly disobedient to parents, 
Can I stop there for just a second? Um, we'll get back into this list. I know you're enjoying the list. Um, <laughs> disobedient, it's amazing to find blasphemy and disobedient to parents by the Holy Spirit on the same plane here. The idea that children need to be taught by their parents to obey is really important to God. Because if a child at a young age doesn't learn to submit to someone who loves and nurtures them, how are they ever going to submit as they grow up to other authorities? How will they ever learn to trust in the voice of God if they're not taught as parent, by their parents to submit? Teaching a child the word no is really important. They need to know what low, no in love means. It's really, really critical. But don't miss the fact that God puts this on the list with all these other things we're reading here. It's amazing. Disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving. This is what men will be in the last days. Um, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now that is a terrible enough description already, but then catch this in verse 5. Having a form of godliness but denying its power. Verse 5 is saying, basically, these are Christians. They act like they're Christians, but they deny the true essence of relationship with Christ. From such people turn away, verse 6, for of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Paul writes this just 30 years after Christ is on the earth. The truth of the gospel hasn't been around all that long, and it doesn't take that long for the truth to get muzzled. And it's not only Paul's letters that have, that are, have you know, there are warnings like this all throughout the New Testament. You see it from Paul and, and, and Peter and John and even Jesus. The New Testament is full of warnings about falling away from the truth, falling, departing from the truth. Here's a, here's a couple of quick examples. 2 Thessalonians 2 um, let no one deceive you by any means, for, the, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. That's a, a, a apostasia, which is apostasy, departure from the truth. Second coming of Christ, the end times, won't come until after a huge departure from the truth. 1 Timothy 1, concerning the faith, many have suffered shipwreck. Peter says in, in uh, 2 Peter Two, there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies and many will follow their destructive ways. John chimes in in 1 John. Um, they went out from us, but they were never really of us. Jesus in the, in the Revelation in chapters 2 and 3, he writes these seven letters to seven different churches and um, you know, they were kind of a report card. And he, he says to each of them, I know your works. Um, he says, I know about you. I know this about you. But in almost all of the letters, he says... Nevertheless, I have this thing that's not quite right. And, um, for example, the church of Ephesus, he says, you left your first love. To another church, he says, you know, you follow the doctrine of Balaam. To another church, he says, you allowed the woman Jezebel to, to um, um, teach and to seduce my servants. I mean, there was already um, in those churches a departure from the truth. So in the New Testament, we have lots of warnings, and here's the reason why. The church has always been right in the middle of the battle for truth. Oh, it's always been there. Always has been. 
And Paul describes the church in 1 Timothy 3. I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the ground of truth. Paul, Paul calls the church the pillar and the ground of truth. So the church is one of the biggest attack zones. You know, it's one of the theaters of spiritual battle um, are going to take place in the church. And we shouldn't be surprised. We just shouldn't be surprised when, when liberalism rises, when cults try to come in and claim place in the church where, you know, we shouldn't even be surprised when there are acts or maybe even splits in the body of Christ because the church is ground zero for an attack against truth. And we need to be, according to the New Testament, we need to be on our guard and we need to be discerning. So, so Peter's talking about the scriptures and he says this about the scriptures in, in 2 Peter 3. He says, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. <laughs> okay, I'm that, right? Okay, I'm, I'm tracking with you, Pete. Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Here, the Holy Spirit through Peter is telling us, you know what? Take your own responsibility to know the truth so well that when the counterfeit comes along, you're not led astray because there are people that are trying to lead people astray. There's um, an association of churches in the world called the WCC, the World Council of Churches. Maybe you've heard of it. They've been around a long time. They've, um, there are about 350 churches and denom denominations and groups that are associated with the World Council of Churches. They're in 110 countries, and by their own um, estimate, they say they represent 500 million Christians. So it's a pretty big organization. The idea and the name sounds pretty good. You know, We promote unity. We're the World Council of Churches. I, everybody's great for unity in the body of Christ. Their headquarters is in Switzerland, and... Um, they have meetings there, annual meetings in other places around the world. Well, they, recent, they had a meeting in Bar, Switzerland, and uh, 25 of their top theologians got together and put out this statement. All religions and all religious traditions are ambiguous. Okay, all religious religions have some good and some bad. Okay, um, all right, maybe, I don't know. Let's see what else you have to say. Quote, we need to move beyond a theology which, con which confines salvation to the explicit personal commitment to Jesus Christ. The World Council of Churches says we've got to move beyond Jesus. I'm afraid having those notes could catch on fire on my piece of paper. I mean, that's shocking for me to hear a council of churches say Jesus is not necessary. Fast forward to today in the United States, in our area of this movement, um, um, the Emerging Church, they call it a conversation. That's a frequently a buzzword. We're having a conversation. And I think it's meant to be uh, culturally less threatening and more relevant, and I, I get it. Um, by the way, the, the Emerging Church, Emergent Church, it's not a formal denomination. It's kind of an umbrella um, to identify a broad group of churches and leaders that took root in the 90s. And my opinion is that when it started out, it was really, really a good idea. It was a group of people saying, they got together and said, okay, how do we do church today? How do we do church in a way that will seem relevant to the generations growing up? You know, what's church 2.0 look like? And as long, and it's really good when you're trying to talk about style, okay? I've been in a lot of different churches, and I have no problem with a church that wants to have lights and chrome and smoke, and that's cool. 
I like that kind of stuff too. I go to concerts and I want, I, it's okay when it's just confined to the issues of style. There needs to be authentic worship going on. I don't care what the style is. Why should we care about somebody else's style? If they worship Jesus, that's great. But when you start talking about substance, when you start talking about doctrine and truth, that's a horse of a different color. I got feelings about that. Anyway, so this, this group that I would call the emergent church is kind of hard to pin down. It's kind of a moving target. And, um, but those that identify kind of under that label, they, they kind of mostly say that um, they, they reject the notion of absolute truth. They just reject that. You can't know anything absolutely. In fact, one leader, and this is a quote, the concept of absolute truth is a rationalization of the worst sort. Okay, so if there's no absolute truth, when you talk about sin, we're really not sure what that is. If there's no absolute truth, when you talk about salvation, we're really not sure what that is. And, um, you know, this rejection of absolute truth just, just moves, um, you know, just when I hear things like that, I go right straight, the words of Jesus kind of leap onto the front of my mind. John 14, Jesus said, I am the, the way the truth. He didn't say, I am a way. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but my me. That's it. He's either a liar or telling the truth. It's not ambiguous. It's very, very clear. No absolute truth is the approach of many in that movement called the um, emergent church. And the reason that Paul even brings apostasy up remember back in, in verse 1, because, is because there's this coming evaluation. You know, something, something's coming on the horizon and everybody should pay attention to it and be concerned about it, and that's the coming of Christ. 2 Timothy 4, I charge you therefore, this is first one, verse 1 where we started our text, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. And there's a lot going on in that verse, but we could sum it up like this, that Paul is saying, hey, Tim, listen, pal, in view of the fact that you're going to stand before God and give an account for your ministry, in view of that fact, preach the word. (laughs) The word. This is what you need to be preaching. Because ultimately, none of us are going to have to give an account before, you know, a mom or a dad or a son, or a daughter, or a friend, or a pastor, or a denomination, or a church group. Our accountability is going to be before God. And the big issue that, isn't, that isn't, is, is going to come up is not going to be, were you hip enough, were you cool enough, were you edgy enough? It's going to be, were you faithful to the way, the truth, and the life? The way. So Paul says to Timothy, preach the truth because people need to be ready for the coming of Christ. Now, I don't know how you react when, um, you know, you hear the topic of this, the coming of Christ, but I get pretty amped up about it. I'm pretty excited about it personally. I mean, I don't know when. I'm not going to make any predictions. <laughs> that's, that's trouble. When you hear predictions, turn and find another person to teach. Um, scripture says that no one knows the hour or the day. So every time you hear somebody saying, well, it's going to be on a certain moon and dot, 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 this date, change the channel. Anyway, the, 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 coming, um, the second coming of Christ has historically been kind of like the apex of Christian hope. It's, it's since the beginning. He's going to come. He's going to deal with this. He's going he's to judge the world. And he's going to make things right. It's always been the Christian hope. He even, he even taught us to pray that way. Thy kingdom come. 
And the Bible points to it a lot. There are 1,845 times where there's a direct reference or an allusion to the second coming of Christ. For every verse that's in here about his first coming, you know, the birth of Christ, for every single verse about that, there are about, about eight that talk about his second coming. It's an eight to one ratio, roughly. A lot more. Jesus spoke about his return 21 times. That was the topic of the conversation. 50 times in the Bible, we're told to be ready. To be ready for the return. Jesus is coming. Are you ready? I hope you are. I mean, his, his, his second coming has been in, in the inspiration of a lot of songs that you sing. Um, okay. The Battle Hymn of the Republic, Julia Ward. You know, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. That's about a second coming. Isaac Watts, sorry to pop your bubble, joy to the world. We sing it at Christmas time and it fits really well, but it's about the second coming. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let the earth receive her king. He's coming. You know, how great thou art talks about second, second coming. When Christ shall come with shouts of acclamation and take me home. What joy will fill my heart. The four square denomination to which we belong, I don't, you know, make a big deal out of that. It's a good, faithful denomination, and I think you understand that. But we, the Foursquare, the, the, the name Foursquare believes in what we call the Foursquare gospel, and it's just kind of like the core values of the denomination. That the idea that Jesus is Savior, baptizer in the Holy Spirit, healer, and soon coming king. Those are the four points um, that we would emphasize, that he's coming back. And as much as as the Bible points to the second coming of Christ and as much as all these songs point to it and, and Bible teaching churches point to the second coming of Christ, many leaders in the emergent church movement would point you away from it. In fact, they'd tell you, oh, here, I'll read some, some quotes. Talking about Christ's return is a silly notion. It's very alienating to people. I get the idea that People who don't know Christ might feel uncomfortable when they realize the truth that a God who will hold them accountable is coming back to hold them account. I'm not sure it's loving to keep that a secret from them. Anyway, one guy whose name is Rob Bell, he's one of the predominant leaders in the movement, he says this, to preach about the return of Jesus Christ for the church and the following judgment is a horrible and toxic message. End quote. You know, I don't know how any Christian pastor can believe that is so arrogant. The believe that, that they know better than the Holy Spirit <laughs> what people ought to know. I mean, from my point up here, I, I, I pray a lot about what, we're gonna, what I'm going to teach on. And you need to know that the last thing I want to do is scare away your friends if you ask them to church. And I would try to be sensitive and loving and authentic. And I, I think that's what we are as a church as best as we can be, and we can always improve in those things. But I've kind of come to the conclusion, and this is just how I've lived, that when the Holy Spirit is saying, here's the passage, and here's, here's where you're going to go, and I think, oh, I don't know about that, Lord. There's something of faith in me that says, you're, you're God. You're the Holy Spirit, the lover of our souls. You are going to be speaking into the hearts of people. Okay, Lord, I'll try not to botch this up. This is you and your word. Go after it. I can hardly see what you're going to do. And so I am a little bit nervous to ever feel that somehow it's up to me to filter or soften the word of God. I'm supposed to be salt and light, and you know the recipe, right? 
a little tiny bit of salt and a whole bunch of light. Okay, that's better than too much salt, which is, oh, to spit it out. Anyway, I, I, but, but a horrible and toxic message, Rob Bell? Really? It's what the Bible calls the blessed hope. Timothy 2, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's our blessed hope, not a horrible and toxic message. He also said this, the whole system that says a few people, time out for a minute. Just so you know, if you don't know who Rob Bell is, he's a very notable man. He's been in the Time Magazine Top 100 Influential People. He's been on probably every one of the morning talk shows. He's got bestseller books, called, a book called Love Wins. I'm not promoting those things. I'm just telling you, this is a notable man who uh, went to Wheaton College. He has a Master of Divinity from Fuller Theological Seminary, which is a respected school. He was um, a regular attender at a very significant four-square church in Southern California. Notable guy. He also said this, the whole system that says a few people, because of what they said, did, or believe in, are going to heaven, a few people, are going into heaven, and everybody else is going to hell is a deeply flawed system and must die. So according to him, the whole question of salvation, of getting into heaven, it's in question. It's teachings like this that, Why? We're supposed to be spiritually alert, not apathetic, and certainly not uncertain. We need to be alert in these areas. Um, I don't know who said this quote, but I, it, it just really helps. A Christian is not likely to fall asleep in a fire or deep waters, but it's likely to grow drowsy in the sunshine. And I think because God loves you and me, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to wade into these, the middle of this battle for truth, 2 Timothy 4, verse 2. Preach the word, he says. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort, and with all long-suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Now, Paul, <laughs> he's so direct, you know, Tim, you know, because the Lord, Jesus Christ himself is going to evaluate you. Preach the word, you know. He doesn't say suggest. He doesn't say discuss. He doesn't say throw your hat in the ring to be considered with all the other philosophies. He's saying just preach the word. Now, listen, I'm not saying that there's no room for us to talk to people about, you know, their worldview. There, there definitely is. I think it's a humble and sensitive thing for us to listen to where people are. But Timothy, told, Timothy was told in his church in Ephesus to preach God's word. And that word preach, keruso, means to proclaim with authority. It's, it's a word that actually means imperial messenger or herald. Not, not the name of the person named herald, but you know, a, a guy, it's an official messenger who would march through the city and he would proclaim these loud messages and declare announcements, things like the news and new policies and new laws, or maybe the king is coming over. You know, this is the guy going through and he would, pro the king is coming, you know. He, sorry if I scared you there or woke anybody up, but <clears throat> that's what he's being told to do. He's told to be proclaimed with authority. That's the word preach. And, and here, here's why Paul is directing Timothy to preach and, and not have a conversation, okay? I'm not saying be closed-minded, but it's not about a conversation. He's saying, maybe, you know, he's saying, you know, he's surrounded at this point 
Timothy is surrounded by a, a lot of intelligent and persuasive and sophisticated, really gifted orators. They're all around him there. Orators who are twisting the truth. So Timothy, by God's power, you need to preach the word of God. Now, you might also understand what's the word mean? Preach the word. It's, you know, it could mean Jesus. I've, some people think that, well, it means, you know, in the beginning it was the word, the word was John 1.1. 1, 1. Yeah, I, for certain it includes Jesus. Um, but preach the word means preach the true message. Preach the gospel. Preach the word of God. Preach the scriptures. Remember back in 2 Timothy, we read that phrase, rightly dividing the word of truth. It's the word of truth. Preach the word of truth, the scriptures. Preach, Timothy. And by backing up just a couple of verses, we can get some context about this command in, in uh, chapter, t- the last part of chapter 3 before we get there. Verse 15, from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. This is the reason we want our children learning scriptures. Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures are able to make you wise for salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And then we get into the chapter we started with, verse 1. I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. So here the word... um, here, word means scripture, means doctrine, the truth. So that's what he's supposed to preach. Now, maybe you noticed when I put that slide up there that the word doctrine was underlined. I don't know how well it shows up on the screen, but um, it's underlined. And the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. And we're going to spend a little more time on that, not today, but in, in the future. And I think that word doctrine kind of gets beat, beat up today in culture. <laughs> you notice that? I mean... Paul likes the word doctrine. He uses it a lot. In chapter 3, he says, all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine. Didiscalia. Um, didiscalia. You try it. <laughs> didascalia. That's what it is. Didascalia. And then he says it again in, in, in chapter 4, verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering. And there it is, that word. Teaching the didascalia, the doctrine. The time has come, and verse 3, time is coming where they will not endure sound doctrine. Paul likes it a lot. But this is how I hear it used in our culture. You know, well, I'm not into doctrine. I'm just into Jesus. You know, sounds really cool. Sounds really (laughs) whatever, relaxed and whatever, meek. I'm not into doctrine because doctrine is so, you know, dogmatic and it's so, you know, divisive. I'm just into Jesus. Well, the thing is, if it wasn't for doctrine, you wouldn't know about Jesus. It, doctrine just simply means right, healthy teaching, correct teaching. That's what the word doctrine means. It's kind of like, you know, when you go and you buy a gadget, and I bought a set of headphones that are Bluetooth, noise canceling, you know, and they've got a couple buttons. And I think if I was a generation younger, I would just get it. But it's got buttons, and it doesn't seem to do what I want to do, but I don't want to look at the manual. I, I, I will not look at the instructions, right? <laughs> so it's not doing what I want it to do, but I know it could do what I want, what I want it to do. And, and um, you know, plus the fact is I turn them upside down and swap the ears and then because I can put headphones on because my tractor makes them too much. Anyway, so 
I'm fighting everything possible. They're falling out of my ears, which sense my body heat. And it's just, you know, I need to read the manual, but I just don't want to read the manual. The guys are chuckling because this is us, right? <laughs> Manuals and maps, they're like men repellent, right? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> That's how people kind of live their lives, though. We're the gadget. This is the manual. But I don't want to read it. We own the manual. We can make reference to the fact that we have one. But we don't want to fa follow the manual as a way of life, as a rule of life. And, and, and I think the tendency, growing tendency today among Christians is for, it to be not, is, is for it to be more and more about how you feel. Not about what's true, but it's about how we feel. How do you feel about that? What, how does that, what does that mean to you? Those are valid questions. But they should never supersede the importance of the truth. Absolute truth. And I think that every person needs to care about doctrine. You know, Acts 2, 42, the church continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. 1 Timothy 4 says, give attention to reading, exhortation, and doctrine. Titus 2 says, uh, Paul writes this too, teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. I think Jesus expects it. At least four times you can find where Jesus walked up to the, the leaders, the church leaders of the day and says, he says this to him, have you not read the scriptures? <laughs> can you picture that? Jesus walking up to the scribes and the Pharisees and having the legitimate, haven't you read God's word? It's like, these are the big theological guys of their day. Haven't you read them? Don't you know what's in your Bible? He would say to these guys. And this is where things get a little bit muddled, I think, in the emerging church. A lot of leaders in the emergent church think that scripture is not clear. In fact, here's a quote. Here's a quote. I don't know if anyone has ever gotten the gospel right. Close quote. Think about that for a minute. Nobody has ever gotten the gospel right. Okay. John didn't get it right. Peter didn't get it right. <laughs> Paul didn't get it. Nobody has ever gotten, you know, yikes. Wow, for 2,000 years, we've all gotten it wrong. Good thing you came along just now to save the day and help us. I mean, that's kind of snotty, wasn't it? <laughs> I, I got that in me, and I can get that way, you know. <la> you know? <laughs> Thank you, may I have another? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but it's as if nobody has ever gotten it right, and you know, we've just, nobody's ever gotten it right. That kind of a statement panders to someone who has itching ears and wants to be told something to make them feel better about their attitude. <laughs> oh. And they'll, they'll tell you that it's impossible to know the truth. They'll, in fact, they'll see a certain virtue in uncertainty. You know, you're not supposed to know the truth. And you'll hear these, these buzz phrases, you know, we don't offer answers, we offer mysteries. You know, it's a conversation. We'll just have a conversation because there's no absolute truth. And this idea stands directly opposed to um, a concept that I think is true that was taught by Martin Luther. 
And, um, you know, if you look him up, it'll come out framed this way. He talks about the perspicuity of Scripture. That's a $50 word. That Here's what it means. Like, here's how you can view this. If you were to get a glass of water out of a well and you looked up at it, what do you want? You want crystal clear. That's what that word, it's a $50 word for clarity, the perspicuity of Scripture. It basically means the central message of the Bible can plainly be seen and plainly interpreted. It's not that hard. And here are kinds of some quotes from leaders in the emerging church. God may have spoken, but he mumbled. We don't exactly know what he said. One leader, a guy named Tony Jones, said, the only way to get at the true message of the Bible is to deconstruct its traditional message. In other words, to find out the true meaning of the Bible, throw out what you think it traditionally has meant. You know, it's, it's like everything, our view of everything has to be shaped by the winds of culture is basically what's being said here. So they view the Bible through the lens of modern culture rather than vice versa. Instead of seeing culture through the lens of God's word. The end point is this. If you don't believe in anything, you can't offend anybody. That's the end point. Your God then becomes being PC, being politically correct, or let's say culturally correct. That's who you worship. Since the highest level of culture and evolution is being politically correct or culturally correct, you know, it, it, it supersedes every other priority. Not offending people supersedes every other priority, including common sense and wisdom and righteousness and get this, even the truth. This is, you know, from my heart now, what I want to say to you as a pastor, as, as your pastor, it's, it's my prayer, my hope, my desire, my purpose that you be the most loved, best-fed church in the universe. That's what, <laughs> that's what I would like to do. And, I'm, you know, I mean, that's what I really want to see happen here. And that's why we drill down deeply into the text as much as I'm capable. Um, and, and, you know, s- some of my messages are going to come out here, and you're going to like them. I hope you like them. Some, and some of them are going to come out, and you're not going to like them. And some of them are going to be a great cure for insomnia, okay? That's going to happen. There will be some. But I'm hoping that what, overall what happens here is that you are going to hear preached the word of God, the truth of the scriptures. Because when you're equipped with the absolute truth of God's word, you become better equipped for what you need to walk through this life. I heard a story about his pastor whose wife was going into surgery. And... Um, it was a pretty serious situation, and um, he, he was with his wife at her bedside, and they didn't know if she was going to make it through the surgery. And so one of the last things she said to him was, listen, honey, I, I, if I die on the operating table, I want to tell you two things. Okay, two things I want you to know. One, I love you. And two, I guess these were coming out in points because as a pastor, they have to do things in points to start with the same letter or something. Anyway, I love you, and the second thing is this. There's a shoebox hidden under the bed, and there's some things in it I want you to see if I die. So she goes into surgery, and um, he can't wait, you know, to find out what's going to happen. And so he runs home and looks in the secret box, and uh, there it is under the bed. There's the shoebox, and he looks in there, and there's $10,000 and three eggs. 
<laughs> it's kind of weird. So he goes back to the hospital, and she wakes up, and she's fine. She, she, she goes through, it's fine. She says, he says, honey, I, I, I'm so happy. You, you're good. Everything's good here. Um, glad you're out of surgery. I saw the shoebox. I looked. But help me understand, $10,000 and three eggs, what is that all about? She said, honey, when we first got married, I was determined not to be a complaining, critical, nagging spouse. So what I did was every time you preached a bad sermon, I put an egg in the box. And I, I, just, I just said to myself, I'm just not going to say anything about it. And um, he's thinking now, wow, you know, 31 years of marriage, three eggs, that's pretty good track record. He's feeling really good about himself until she finished her sentence. And she said, and whenever I got a dozen eggs, I sold them and put the money in the box. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> I don't know about laying eggs, um, but I want to encourage you with a couple of things as we go out the door today. Be careful about what you hear. Just be careful about what you hear. You, you need to listen with really, really good discernment. And you need to filter everything through the absolute grid of God's word. Everything. There are a lot of texts in here that are ambiguous. They're kind of hard. You might have to do some studying and digging. Um, and there are some things that maybe you won't understand at some season. And um, we can explore it together. There are lots of things I don't understand, but I'm a student and I'm still drilling. Um, but the central message of the Bible is very clear and easily understood. And the more we go through it and the more we apply it, the better we are equipped to live on this earth and for eternity. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, your word tells us to put on the whole armor of God in Ephesians 6. And it's interesting to note that when you tell us what to put on, the very first item you tell us to put on is the belt of truth. And Jesus, you said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You didn't say, I'm a way, a, a truth, a life. You said, you are the way, the truth. Lord, I pray that your people would be strengthened today. And rather than looking at life through the lens of culture, through news reports and opinions, instead, Lord, that we would see everything, culture included, through the lens of your word. Speak to us, Lord, we pray. Amen. I believe in God.